The Infernal Bodyguard Written by Santalatron Read by Literarian Chapter 19 Working Hard Gabriel, but you... where? Alistair stepped off the bottom step, put down his bag and looked eagerly behind Gabriel for the slouch that shunned all social etiquette. It was seven in the morning and Alistair had been about to leave to go back to Crowley's bedside after a much-needed few hours in his own bed. Where's Crowley? he asked desperately as a wave of dread settled low in his chest at the absence of the willful nonchalance he'd missed so keenly. Gabriel gave him a sorrowful look and clasped his shoulders and Alistair felt his heart squeeze almost painfully in his chest. No. I'm sorry, Alistair. He crumbled, his vision swimming, all other sounds drowned out by the rushing of his own blood in his ears. His body felt numb, as if he wasn't quite inside it anymore, watching from a distance. Gabriel's hands, although unwelcome, were keeping him from collapsing backwards onto the stairs as he fought with the news he'd just been given. He knew he shouldn't have left, he should have stayed, done something, anything, just been there if that's all he could do. Perhaps if he'd been there. Gabriel still seemed to be talking, his low voice rumbling around the cacophony in Alistair's head. He tried to focus on the words. So I'm sure you can understand why he has asked that you don't try and contact him. Contact him? Wait, what? He's not dead? Alistair blurted out. Hope rising, the desolation of thinking Crowley dead and the elation of finding him not to be in such short succession clashed horribly, leaving Alistair confused and feeling slightly sick. Dad? No, of course he's alive. Do try to listen more, Alistair. You know I hate having to repeat myself. He woke up in the night. He asked me to tell you now that his job is done, he needs to take some time off to heal before moving on to his next assignment. In the light of your indiscretions. Gabriel sneered, but Alistair wasn't seeing anything past the guilty images in his head right now. Throughout his time here, he thought it would be more appropriate if I took his belongings back to him. He said to tell you not to come looking for him while he recovers. So, Gabriel let go of Alistair's shoulders and straightened up, all traces of concern vanishing. Now you can concentrate on getting me that first draft without any distractions. Being a Booker Prize winner doesn't get you out of the fact that we're on a deadline, remember? And you've already wasted so much time. Gabriel flashed him a poor facsimile of a smile, 
clapped him on the shoulder again just a bit too firmly and strode off to the kitchen. He had a brief chat with the others to let them know of the news before going back downstairs to Crowley's, no, to the guest bedroom in the basement. Gabriel returned after a little while with Crowley's bags full of his belongings and left. Alistair hadn't moved from his spot at the bottom of the stairs where he was staring at the white and blue patterns of the tiles. He should have known better. He shouldn't have hoped. He looked at his own bag next to his feet, took a deep breath and calmly turned around and walked back to his bedroom. He nearly made it before the first sob escaped. The police came back when they found out Crowley was awake. They conducted their interview in his room with the ward matron frowning on from the corner. She'd taken a shine to Crowley, women of a certain age and disposition tended to whether he liked it or not, and was not about to let anyone upset him while under her care. The detective leading the interview seemed to concur with that sentiment and Crowley was left wondering who the current police and crime commissioner was and if he'd ever been assigned to them. The hospital staff seemed so disappointed when Crowley was eventually discharged. They'd given up asking when Alistair would be back, but seemed to have held on to the hope that he would be there to pick him up. When he wasn't, they insisted he let them book him a taxi. It was a fairly sedate 15-minute journey back to Mayfair, the driver making the ride as smooth as possible. He sensed that Crowley wasn't in the mood to talk, even going so far as to switch the radio off when he glanced back and saw Crowley's expression as Bono began to sing With or Without You. Lamenting the sunglasses lost in the struggle, Crowley tipped the driver far more than was necessary when he brought Crowley's bags up to the flat for him. The first thing that Crowley did when he got inside was check on his plants. He prowled around the room, studiously ignoring the rug in the center and the memories that came with it of Alistair spread out in ecstasy beneath him, softly lit and surrounded by greenery. His watering system had done its job and there were only a couple of plants that needed a stern talking to about their posture. Not that his heart was really in it, what with it lying shattered on a hospital floor. His bag with all his belongings had turned up at the hospital three days ago, but Alistair had not. No visitors, no phone calls, not even a message. From anyone. Nothing. He tried to tell himself it was just like every other assignment, but the truth was, it wasn't. For once, Crowley had felt like part of something. He'd tentatively let them in, telling himself the risk was worth it this time, and yet again he'd been thrown away. So yes, he was disappointed. 
disappointed, but not surprised. One glance at his bank account told him he had been paid in full, but he didn't want any of the ridiculous fee he had demanded. It just reminded him that he hadn't wanted this job in the first place, and maybe he had been right. Fresh sheets spared him from the smell of Alistair in his bed, but the memories of the way he had caressed him into oblivion on those memory foam top pocket springs plagued him to the point where he had to give up and go and sleep on the sofa despite the way his chest protested. Crowley lay there on his hard leather sofa, staring into the dark. His fear had been right. Alistair had seen the side of him that got unleashed when everything else had failed, the beast he kept locked up inside, and Alistair had clearly decided he wanted nothing to do with the cursed hell thing that Crowley really was. Early the next morning, his phone rang and woke him up. He answered it in the manner it deserved to discover the hospital had put him on welfare calls for at least the first week. Apparently, they didn't like the idea of him being on his own. Well, neither did he, but there wasn't a lot he could do about it. The nurse had responded to his suggestion of where she could shove the welfare calls with the assurance that they would happen whether he liked it or not and he should answer them because he wouldn't like what happened if he didn't. Turns out they had no qualms about sending the police to perform the welfare check in person and they tended to get excited and get out the big red key. Crowley relented. It was two more days of definitely not moping before he realized he had never called R.P. Tyler back. He was going to need him again at some point, so he should at least call out of courtesy. Let him know what had happened. Crowley! R.P. sounded delighted when he answered. Glad to hear you're still with us, you rapscallion. You had us worried for a while there. Hey, Uppy. Yeah, thanks. Listen, I'm up to my eyeballs on drugs right now, but I picked up your voicemail when I woke up. Voicemail? Let me... Ah, yes, the inheritance thing. Bit of an odd one, that. Quite a difficult thing to spot. Jolly complicated, Will, but you know I have a nose for that sort of thing. It's got the usual blabber about his house and financial estate, going to his nearest relative, some specifics about bequests to his staff and various charities, etc. But it's his literary estate where it all goes a bit technical. It's in his contract, you see. Upon his death, the rights to his books revert back to the publisher. Whoever is his editor would have full control over it all. Merchandising, cover artwork, even film and television rights. His editor could make all the decisions by themselves. Currently, the buck stops with Alistair, and he has, thus far, resisted any form of merchandising or screen adaptation. So, his editor effectively inherits the rights to the books? Crowley asked. 
He wasn't quite sure why he asked, seeing as it was made very clear that this was no longer his business, but Gabriel's sneering face made him all sorts of angry. Oh yes, and with the book's popularity, I would imagine there's quite a lot of money to be made if they decided to branch out. I'll send it all over to you. Money. How terribly cliché. Not to mention that Alistair's contract is due to end this summer and he would be free to renegotiate or even leave. Well, that explained the timing. Crowley connected a few Gabriel and Lord Beelzebub-shaped dots. Abby, I know I say it a lot, but you are a genius. Crowley said, and he could hear the full modesty radiating down the phone as he hung up. Gabriel. He'd taken an instant dislike to the asshole, and apparently it had been wholly justified. Lord Beelzebub just so happened to own a production company, and with Gabriel in charge of granting rights, they could make a fortune. Not to mention, Gabriel would control a merchandising empire. It was simple greed. Gabriel wanted money and power, and Alistair was getting in the way of that. With the contract up for renewal, Gabriel was running out of time to convince Alistair to change his mind, so he'd apparently decided to just get rid of him. It did throw what Gabriel told him about Alistair somewhat into doubt, but surely if Alistair wanted to see him, he would have come to the hospital. Crowley trusted Pepper to give Alistair the push he needed unless... unless he truly didn't want to. Crowley had to extinguish that little flicker of hope before it truly caught and dragged him down somewhere he didn't want to end up. Regardless of his own heartbreak, he couldn't let Gabriel get away with this. Alistair wasn't in any immediate danger, fortunately. Lord Beelzebub was smart and would have stamped on any ideas to keep trying to hurt him now the police were sniffing around and they had Ligger's body in evidence. With the murder attempt so public, it was impossible for them to make it all just disappear, but it was easy enough for a lord to plausibly deny any involvement with one link like that. Any more attempts would start to raise more suspicion than they could reasonably deflect. But Crowley wasn't about to let them get away with this. However, if Lord Beelzebub was involved, then the police were not a good first choice. He needed someone who wouldn't have any conflicts of interest. Someone ruthless who would be able to take this all the way. Someone with a voice that they weren't afraid to use. After a moment's thought, he got out his laptop, pulled up the files from RP and started tapping away. The next day, Carmine Zeigeber opened her email and found one from an address she didn't recognize. A dangerous man 666 at protonmail.com 
Subject, something to titillate you. A burner account. Well, this should be interesting. She decided to open it, scanned quickly down the body of the email, then grinned with all her perfect teeth, her eyes sparkling with something akin to delight as she caught the scent of the hunt. After Gabriel left, taking every last piece of Crowley with him, Alistair threw himself into finishing his book. He barely left his library, often eating up there as well, firmly ensconced behind his trusty old laptop. Right now, he needed to not think about how his calm, comfortable life had changed beyond all recognition. How he'd been on the run from a killer, taken a chance and fallen stupidly and apparently irrevocably in love and had his heart shattered once again. Crowley, that deliciously complex enigma all packaged up in sinfully tight trousers and bonfire hair, Crowley, who had literally taken a bullet for him and nearly died in the process, Crowley, the person who had slithered his way into Alistair's life and his heart, had fulfilled his contract and then dropped him like a soggy pancake. Someone had hated Alistair enough to want him dead, and the man he loved wanted nothing to do with him, not even to say goodbye. His parents arrived after a few days, his mother livid that she'd been kept in the dark about it all and had had to hear about it on the news. They stayed for a week. While they brought some comfort, his mother's badgering to see a therapist on account of his low mood was unhelpful. They didn't know it was nothing to do with the shooting, and he wasn't about to tell them that he'd gone and fallen in love with his bodyguard. He couldn't bear telling his parents about yet another failure, or the thought of what his mother might do if she found out what Crowley had done. He wrote the week out, partly glad for the distraction, but also itching to get back to his laptop. After they left, he shut himself away to write. He wrote because feeling productive eased his pain. He lost himself in the story and churned out page upon page of world-building, character-revealing, plot-twisting prose in the hope that it would have sufficient value in it to start to rebuild his sense of self that there would be something in all those words that people might like or at least think was interesting. Anything that could make him feel less worthless. Anything to prove to himself that he was enough. The story had definitely taken a darker turn, but perhaps it was time for it to mature. Writing was his therapy, and he wrote like a man possessed. 
Gabriel had made it clear that he expected the manuscript soon, before the contract renewal, if he wanted to continue to be published, and this was one task he was determined not to fail. May arrived, and Anathema, Pepper and Tracy each tried to coax him out for his birthday, with no success. He had no interest in celebrating anything. In the end, they compromised. Tracy cooked his favorite food, and they all had dinner together in the dining room. Alistair sat and listened to the chatter drifting around the table. 38. 38, and here he was, hiding away from the world, still. So desperate for love that he couldn't even let a man into his house without falling for him. 38, and utterly pathetic. Desperately lonely, but at least he wasn't alone. Writing swiftly resumed, and, face buried in his laptop, he wrote good chapters, he wrote dubious scenes that he would later rewrite several times before scrapping and starting again. He wrote entire characters in and out of existence. Anathema was inundated with questions, scribbled on paper or emailed, about various topics that may or may not end up being relevant, and she did her best to keep up with them all, roping Pepper in occasionally. Alistair barely noticed spring roll into summer, marked by now twice-weekly calls from Gabriel chasing the elusive first draft. Michael seemed to be talking to him a lot, certainly. And she didn't look too happy about it. Screen adaptations and merchandising were mentioned once again, and once again Alistair gave a flat no. Alistair took to appearing suddenly throughout the day and shoving paper under the nose of the first person he saw to ask them what they thought. They always thought it was good. Often they would ask obvious questions that he'd been too close to the story to spot, and he'd bustle back up the stairs with purpose, because suddenly he could see how the plot would work, and he absolutely had to get it written down now, before he lost it. In late June, the Booker Committee tried to arrange another event, and Alistair managed to talk them down to just a press briefing. He attended... Pictures were taken, and he managed to hold himself together enough to give a small speech. At first glance, he was quite clearly thanking all the people in the venue and hospital that helped him that evening. But if you knew what he knew, then the vast bulk of the speech was directed at one person alone. However, with the charmingly confusing ambiguity in the English language between the singular and plural versions of you, it slipped through unnoticed. Michael unfortunately insisted he stay until the end, when all he wanted to do was get back to his laptop and immerse himself in someone else's life, and by the time they went home, he was thoroughly exhausted. To cap it all off, the police came by a few days later with more questions. 
They seemed to want to know about his personal estate and contracts, presumably establishing motives. He let Anathema deal with the details, only needing to answer a few questions directly. And then, just as July started to wind down to make space for August, and everything felt as if it were melting in the heat, he sat back from his keyboard. The final scene had been typed and given a once-over to spot any glaring plot holes. He'd run himself into the ground to get it out before the contract renewal came up, before his publishing house decided he was too slow and decided not to renew it, and he lost everything. And now, here it was. He wondered what Crowley would think of it. He was the only person he really wanted to show it, wherever he was. He picked up the laptop and folded it under one arm and ventured downstairs to find Anathema. She was in her study, having a very serious-looking conversation with Newt. Oh, Alistair, does this mean you're finished? She asked brightly as he appeared in the doorframe. Uh, yes, my dear, I think so. First draft, anyway. He looked guiltily at Newt. I know it's a bit later than we would have liked. I suppose Gabriel sent you to hurry me along? Anathema and Newt shared a nervous glance. Actually, no. It appears Gabriel has been, um, moved. You're getting a new editor, Anathema said carefully. I'm being reassigned as well, Newt said, watching Alistair carefully. Your new editor's name is Mary Hodges. She's fairly new to publishing, but very shrewd. She can be a bit strict, though. Reminds me of a nun, except for the fact that she talks so much. Anyway, she sent me here to let you know and arrange a time when she can meet you. Alistair wasn't unduly upset over the loss of Gabriel, but he was nervous about working with someone new. Better the devil you know and all that. Fortunately, Mary Hodges turned out to be firm but fair and with a tendency to coo over little things like baby goats and, for some reason, bats and snakes. She took an instant liking to Anathema's occult tendencies and to Pepper's determination. She tolerated Michael and avoided Uriel where possible. She and Tracy could talk for hours. When she'd read his first draft through, she took Alistair out to celebrate. His concern that his contract might not be renewed seemed to leave her quite baffled. You're one of our best-selling authors, Alistair. Why on earth do you think we wouldn't fight to keep you? Once the new contract was signed, it had some changes from the previous one at Anathema's insistence, but he wasn't really sure what they were, and Alistair felt he could breathe a little easier. The edits came thick and fast. Alistair was quietly surprised to find that he agreed with most of Mary's suggestions, and as summer slipped into autumn, she began to accompany them all on their weekly family lunch. 
Alistair still felt the void where Crowley should have been, feeling like he was just about to slouch in with a hey angel and no hint whatsoever of an apology or explanation. He fought hard not to shift his chair so there was a space next to him every time. September was unusually warm and marked the start of the apple harvest. He normally went home each year to help, and being the owner, he really ought to show his face, but he just couldn't face it this year. He made his apologies to his parents, blaming the timing of the book writing, and hoped they'd understand. Autumn flew by in a flurry of reds and yellows and oranges, the cold wind and overnight frosts promising winter was on the way. Alistair tried, but everywhere he saw the bright red leaves of the trees hunkering down for the leaner months, he thought of Crowley, of his vibrant, spiky locks. Every shade he saw was automatically compared to Crowley's hair, every golden leaf to his bronze eyes, and everything fell short. He even thought he saw him a few times on his brief forays out and about, just glimpses out of the corner of his eye that set his heart racing, but when he turned it was just the usual autumnal glow. He wondered if Crowley liked this time of year, or if he suffered as the weather got colder. He tried not to wonder what Crowley was doing now, who he was with, where he was going, or if he'd had to jump in front of another hateful weapon in the line of duty. He tried to hope that he was holed up somewhere warm, looking after some stuffy dignitary at a tedious conference somewhere. Something dull and safe but he knew deep down that Crowley would be out there in the world doing something completely ridiculous and living life to the full while he had been left behind. He refused to look for him in the background of paparazzi photos in case he found him. Bonfire night was hard. Flames were everywhere, bringing back painful memories. Every smoking bonfire took him back to that moment on the stage, the moment where he identified the wood smoke smell right before it was overpowered by the blood. Alistair retreated back to his room to pore over cover ideas and potential artists until it was all over. He'd enjoyed the fireworks in previous years, but this year the thought of being out in the dark, facing roaring flames, surrounded by strangers, flashing lights and loud explosions was just too much to handle. While the others went out to celebrate at his insistence, Alistair found himself curled up on the Chesterfield sofa in the library, clutching a soft charcoal t-shirt that had been in the laundry cycle when Gabriel arrived back from the hospital all those months ago. Really, he should have sent it back as soon as he found it, but he couldn't bring himself to do it and had kept it guiltily hidden away in his bedside drawer ever since. 
The T-shirt may have lost Crowley's scent through the wash, but the blanket on the sofa still retained a hint of it, and Alistair was feeling too fragile to be able to resist tonight. Just before Christmas, the book was declared finished. They all went out to celebrate, and Alistair actually enjoyed himself. Later that night, he felt oddly guilty for having managed to put Crowley out of his mind for one night. Perhaps, he wondered, this is where I start to finally let him go. Christmas itself was a slightly subdued affair. Alistair was wrung out from writing, and the mood in the house was quieter than usual, with Pepper away with her mum, but they still exchanged gifts and tried to enjoy themselves. Alistair skipped the New Year's celebrations completely. He half-heartedly thought about making a resolution, but lacking the confidence he'd actually keep it, he decided it was best not to bother. Michael had sent copies of the manuscript out before Christmas to a choice selection of reviewers to gather quotes, and Alistair was bewildered at the wonderful comments that began to trickle back. It was all very lovely, but really he only wanted one person's opinion on what he had written, and he was never going to get that now. He thought about sending a copy to his flat, but that would be ignoring Crowley's request for no contact, and it was a line that Alistair didn't want to cross because he knew if he did, he wouldn't be able to stop. So much for letting go. Finally, the book began production, and orders were opened to the trade. As requested, Alistair received the first book that came off the line, placing it proudly on the shelf with his other works. Pre-orders opened not long after, and an official date was set for the launch party in April, shortly before his birthday. Michael sent him back to Oswald, with Uriel, Tracy and Pepper by his side again. Oswald only looked over Alistair's shoulder once, but he was astute enough to not broach the subject, instead focusing on delivering his usual bespoke, beautifully tailored perfection. Alistair chose a light wool, the color of creme caramel. The waistcoat was to be a couple of shades darker in a more textured fabric. They looked through the style book, Alistair pointed out anything that appealed to him, and Oswald sketched it together as they chatted. Alistair tried, but he just couldn't see how it would all fit together. Crowley would have been able to see it, he thought, before wishing he hadn't, as all the longing he kept shored up threatened to crash down on him right then and there on that blasted Chesterfield sofa. It had been roughly a year since Crowley first sauntered into his life, and he had had to keep himself very busy in order not to think about him constantly and miss him with every fibre of his being. Mercifully, the others hadn't mentioned anything, and while the normality helped a bit, he couldn't help feeling lonely in his grave. 
Pepper and Tracy declared the design for the suit utterly divine, and he trusted them. So he took a risk and said yes to the drawing in front of him, hoping it would turn out as wonderful as Oswald promised. And thus the countdown began. The hype began and the media circuit started up, with Michael dragging him all over the place to build excitement for the launch party. Fortunately, Michael handled the planning of that directly with Mary, so Alistair stayed out of it as much as possible, surfacing only as and when he was needed, or to veto the odd outlandish gimmick in passing. Instead, he caught up on his reading. He was burnt out from the rush to get the book into production, so sank into his library as much as possible, deciding to work his way back through his Woodhouse collection. He definitely wasn't hiding from the world, that would be silly. If anything, he was hiding from himself, distracting himself with other people's lives so he wouldn't think of his own. The devil may make for idle hands, but a devilishly handsome serpent of a man was sauntering his way through his idle thoughts, so Alistair tried to make sure there weren't any. And he avoided his Chesterfield so far. Anathema kept him up to date with how everything was progressing, any details that needed ironing out, and when the mountain of books to be pre-signed would arrive, but she seemed distant lately. Not quite herself. Everyone in the household was on edge, and while it seemed a bit extreme for the launch event, Alistair couldn't think what else would have them all so worried. A few days before the event, he went back to pick up the suit, and it was every bit as wonderful as he'd been promised. It was exquisitely comfortable, and somehow managed to make him look more confident than he felt. Although this time there was no red silk pocket lining. Not that he looked for it, of course. He told himself he wouldn't be upset over something so trivial. Then, somehow, it was the morning of the launch, and Alistair was a bundle of nerves. He had to get through the day in the knowledge that in the evening he would be in a room with a lot of influential people, all there to investigate him and his story. There would be a lot of questions, and he probably wouldn't want to answer most of them. The day wore on, and he found himself wishing Crowley was there, not just with him, but for him. He knew Uriel was competent in a blunt instrument sort of way, but he fervently wished that he had Crowley's clever mind there as well, working out all the angles beforehand. Getting out the winged cufflinks and setting them on his bedside table ready for later, Alistair decided that if Crowley couldn't be there in person, then he would be there in spirit, and it would have to do. Everyone seemed tense over a late lunch. There were quiet conversations happening in corners around the house that stopped when Alistair drew near, and he couldn't help feeling like something was being kept from him. 
At last, it was time to get ready, and Alistair moved on autopilot. He tried to retie his tartan bow tie for the third time before giving up and traipsing downstairs. Tracy took one look at him where he stood in the kitchen doorway and bustled over to sort it out with an affectionate roll of her eyes. She smoothed down his lapels and paused, looking at him. I'm so proud of you, Mr. F., she said quietly. You've picked yourself up again and ploughed on with life, writing another wonderful book. You've got such strength, Alistair, I don't know how you do it. Tracy's eyes were shining. She patted his chest and turned around quickly to finish her own preparations. Alistair's shoulders sagged. His hands came up to fiddle with his signet ring. He didn't feel strong. He felt like he was hiding from life, just pretending on the outside, while inside he felt shriveled and bereft. An important part of his soul was missing, and he felt like he was just barely coasting along without it. It had been months since he last saw Crowley, and he was no closer to getting over him than he was to quitting everything and becoming a monk. At long last, they all gathered in the entrance hall, heels clicking quietly on the tiles. The mood was subdued, but everyone had made an effort. Uriel was in a white suit with narrow trousers, the boxy blazer sleeves scrunched up to her elbows. It was effortlessly stylish without looking like she was trying. Alistair wondered if Oswald had measured her without him noticing. Michael had her folder under her arm and was on duty tonight and itching to get started. She wore pale trousers in a soft mushroom colour, with a white blouse, the ruffles spilling out over the neck of the matching waistcoat. In a slight departure from her usual flamboyant style, Tracy had a long, flared, dusty pink linen skirt and matching jacket. Underneath was a white blouse with a large bow at the neck. The skirt was held up with a light brown belt and she had matching boots on her feet. Jumping down the stairs in twos and threes, Pepper was in skin-tight black trousers and Alistair had a little moment when he saw them but she had paired it with a loose black camisole that cut low at the front and black leather biker jacket over the top. Anathema brought out her usual occult style in the deep purple, ankle-length, full skirt that swished as she moved with a black lace shirt over a matching bodice. She was unusually subdued and looked very tired under her smoky eye makeup. Conveniently being held at the Foyle's flagship store on Charing Cross Road, the launch event was a mere five-minute walk, perhaps seven in heels, maybe ten if one has been imbibing, south of the house. Alistair was amazed that Mary and Michael had managed to book such a legendary location and rather nervous at the thought of not filling it. 
As it turned out, his worries were entirely unfounded. The event space was on the top floor, one side looking down over the atrium and the six offset stories of books beneath them. They'd thoughtfully set up a display by the entrance on the ground floor of all his previous work, and he was rather alarmed to find a photo of him larger than life and dominating one corner by a stack of the books he had pre-signed. He could hear the noise coming from the top floor, and it certainly sounded like a lot of people. Entering the mirrored lift, he could see his grim expression staring back at him, and it was a fairly accurate representation of how he felt. As they all stepped out into the hallway on the sixth floor, Alistair stopped suddenly. You all right, Alistair? Pepper asked carefully from his left. I... Um, I wasn't expecting this many people, my dear he said, his voice quivering slightly. Pepper merely smiled and took him by the arm to lead him through the open doorways to the auditorium. The ceiling was low, with all the services exposed. Silver ducting tangled with white conduit against a pale grey painted ceiling, the walls and the two boxy columns a stark white. The windows on the outside wall were obscured by white roller blinds, the opposite side comprising of a metal-trimmed glass balcony edge that overlooked the atrium, with a large red curtain that could be pulled over to obscure the view, if so desired. For tonight, they left it open so the guests could look down at the display below. Tall, circular tables were dotted throughout the space, covered in the same rich red fabric, holding napkins and the occasional empty glass that the roving waiting staff hadn't got to yet. The floor seemed to be a light wooden laminate, but Alistair couldn't really tell due to the sheer number of people in the room. The noise level up there was so loud that the speakers in the corner were quite drowned out, despite trying their best. Now will you believe us when we say you're a good writer, hmm? Pepper asked. Come on, let's get you a drink. Uh, I'm going to need two, actually. I've just seen Tracy heading for that Shedwell bloke, and I think he actually smiled. Although it might have been a grimace, hard to tell. He doesn't seem to have had much practice at smiling. She grumbled as they edged around the room to the table set up to be the bar. Alistair could see lots of very influential people who he assumed were all here so they could see who else was here. There were also the reviewers that they'd sent his manuscript to and a whole host of other people that he vaguely recognized. Alistair didn't have many friends. He knew a lot of people, yes, research tended to introduce one to all sorts. But friends were a rare commodity in his life. Uriel appeared at the bar next to him. All the usual suspects here tonight, she said, looking across Alistair at Pepper. Can't see any major risks. 
gin and tonic in hand, Alistair steeled himself to face the crowds, Uriel on one side, Pepper on the other. Two forces of nature to prop him up. Pepper's spark and Uriel's calm resonating within him, giving him confidence. But they weren't Crowley. He would feel safer with Crowley. He wouldn't care one fig what all these people thought as long as he could get Crowley to smile. Oh yes, he and Crowley could have a lot of fun in a room like this. But Crowley wasn't here. And so he went forth as Michael announced his arrival, feeling like one half of a double act, hopping along and making the best of it. It wasn't perfect, but it was all he had, and he would have to get used to it. Anathema seemed to be feeling the same herself, her usual drive apparently parked up for the evening. No Newt? Alistair asked, mildly surprised. Newt had become a regular fixture at the house, although Alistair did realise it was a while since he'd seen him last. No, not tonight, Anathema said sadly, but offered no explanation. She was spared from any further questions by Michael dragging Alistair away to schmooze some industry bigwigs. Despite his misgivings, the evening progressed well. Alistair made lots of small talk, and mercifully every time anyone brought up the Booker Awards night, Uriel or Pepper would manage to derail that conversation with ever more inventive methods. He made a mental note to thank them properly later. He didn't want to think about that night. Not here, in front of all these almost strangers. In a break in the flow of conversations, he wandered over to the balcony that looked down to the entrance. He was surprised to see it full of people, all coming in apparently to buy his new book. Then someone looked up and saw him and shouted his name. Suddenly, everyone on the ground floor was poking each other and pointing up, some even taking their phones out and taking pictures. Michael always encouraged him to connect with his fans, so he leaned his arms on the railing to hold his drink and tentatively waved back. He pressed forward to wave at the people closer to the wall below, thankful for the five floors and several bouncers between them. He didn't notice as he leant on his cufflink. Didn't feel as he squeezed it between his wrist and the brass-coloured metal of the railing edge. Fans suitably acknowledged he was about to retreat when a flashing light caught his eye and he heard a device of some sort making a lot of noise, struggling to be heard above the people chatter and the music behind him. It stood out against the fast beat of Whitney requesting a higher love, whatever that meant. He glanced over toward the source on sheer instinct. It was coming from one end of the ground floor, near where some staff were gathered, watching the crowd. 
Alistair saw the amber-red hair first, and his heart skipped a beat. It was longer now, almost down to his shoulders, with the top half pulled back into a small bun, and, oh Lord, how it suited him! He saw the face turn up towards him, shielded by an unmistakable pair of stylish sunglasses, those hadn't changed in the least, but even from here he could see the concern. All the breath left his body, and it was only being caught between his chest and the railing that stopped the drink falling from his hand. Crowley! Crowley was here! Crowley was downstairs! Alistair didn't even stop to think. He turned around and almost ran towards the lift, discarding his drink on the nearest table and ignoring everyone in his path. He was jabbing the lift button furiously when Uriel caught up with him. He huffed in frustration and darted toward the stairs at the back of the building before she could ask him just what the hell he was doing. Alistair raced down the stairs, promising he would do exercise in future, and burst onto the main floor through the double doors at the bottom, panting. The row of security turned around to look at him curiously, but made no move to stop him as he raced desperately through the display of books, searching for any sign of hair like hellfire and coal-black clothes. He got to the place he'd last seen Crowley, trying not to acknowledge the sinking feeling in his chest that told him he was already too late. Crowley was gone. Uriel caught up to him where he was stood, looking lost and frightened. The people there had clearly thought he'd come down to talk to them and were crowding around him, holding out books to be signed. He looked at her, eyes wide and silently pleading, and she swooped in, arm around his shoulders, and led him away with an apology that he was needed upstairs urgently. A couple of shop security had come over and were helping to make sure nobody tried to follow. Alistair was reeling. Why had Crowley come? What was he doing here? Why had he left when he saw him? Uriel was frowning at him, a little bit annoyed at the sudden game of chase, but a lot worried at his uncharacteristic behaviour. She guided him into the lift. What the bloody hell was that? Uriel demanded as the lift doors closed. Haven't you done anything in your life that didn't make much sense, except down in your stomach somewhere? He asked, his voice a little distant as he stared at the floor. Her silence was an answer in itself. <sighs> Crowley was here, he admitted with a sigh, looking up to catch her reflected gaze in the lift mirror. Uriel paused and looked back at him, confused. Crowley? And you went after him? Alistair nodded. I don't know why he was here. Gabriel told me he wanted nothing more to do with me, but it was definitely him. 
the lift doors opened and Alistair walked out to see Pepper and Anathema, their shoulders sagging with relief when they saw him. Uriel followed, but put a hand on his arm, stopping him before they rejoined the party. What do you mean Gabriel told you Crowley wanted nothing more to do with you? He told us it was you who wanted nothing more to do with Crowley, and we weren't to mention him ever again, Uriel said, watching him with searching eyes. You what? Pepper blurted out. Crowley. Crowley was here. That's why I ran downstairs. Alistair looked at the floor as he admitted his weakness, hoping they would understand and not make him say any more. Then his brain repeated Uriel's words back to him. I'm sorry, what did Gabriel say to you? He looked up sharply to three matching, confused expressions. Gabriel told us you didn't want to ever hear about Crowley again. He said Crowley said something horrid to you in the hospital, and we weren't to ever mention his name. Anathema said slowly, studying his reaction. I... no! No, that's not what happened at all! Crowley never woke up while I was there. Gabriel came and told me you had ordered him to make me come home and get some proper rest. Crowley woke up after I left. Gabriel said Crowley asked that we don't try and contact him. That's why Gabriel came to get his belongings. After everything, I never even got to say thank you. Or goodbye. Alistair was confused. Confused and rapidly becoming angry as he began to get the shape of something in his head. His hands were cycling between clenching at his sides and fiddling with his ring. He couldn't understand why Gabriel would lie to them like that. He noticed the three ladies in front of him all share a look that he didn't have the energy to try and decipher right now. Alistair, if Gabriel told us that you didn't want Crowley and told you that Crowley didn't want you... Pepper said carefully. Then what did he tell Crowley? The question slammed down in front of Alistair's thought process like a gigantic, disembodied cartoon foot. Impossible to ignore and raising a significant number of extra questions as it did so. What did he tell Crowley? If Gabriel had lied to them, then it wasn't much of a stretch to think he'd lied to Crowley too. If Gabriel told Crowley to stay away, then maybe... Maybe what? Alistair didn't know what might have been, and it had plagued him whenever he found himself too idle. Perhaps it was time he found out... The door to the stairs opened and the lady in foil's uniform stepped out, holding a pot full of flowers. Ah, Mr. Fell, this was left downstairs for you. I'll put them on the side for you to pick up later, she said. Wait! Alistair nearly shouted out as she turned towards the offices. 
Alistair darted forward to find the card. It simply said, Congratulations, Angel, in a spiky, angular handwriting. The G had a looping tail. There was no signature, but he didn't need one to know where these had come from. Forget-me-nots and snake's head fritillaries. Crowley. Alistair tucked the card back in and thanked the lady as she took the pot away for later. He turned to the three ladies who were watching him intently and tucked his waistcoat back into place. Ladies, it seems we have been played for suckers. In the morning I intend to find Crowley and find out just what the hell Gabriel was playing at. And with that, he headed back into his party with his head held higher than it had been in months. It would be common at this point to say a weight had been lifted from his shoulders, but in Alistair's case, it felt more like a weight had been attached. He was no longer floating around untethered and lost, drifting through life. Now he had purpose. He had a direction. And, finally feeling grounded for the first time in almost a year, he actually enjoyed the rest of his launch party with the promise of, at the very least, some closure, hopefully, by the end of the week. Should we tell him? Pepper asked Uriel after Alistair had walked away. No. Let him enjoy tonight. We will have that conversation tomorrow, just like we planned, Uriel said. Tomorrow, Anathema repeated, and with a heavy sigh, followed the others to rejoin the room. <laughs>